Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14, that's pages 12 and 13 in the Bibles provided for you if you don't have one. We'll be camped out there for a better part of our morning this morning. My name is Jake. I'm the other Jake, Jake Harp, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, if you're new with us today, welcome. We are super excited that you're joining us, that you're kicking the tires to see if this is the church family that you want to be a part of. And so thank you for coming. Thank you for trying us out. For those of you that have been here for a long time, welcome back. We hope that you have a, a good worshipful experience with your brothers and sisters today. So we are in the middle of a series called Too Much, Living with Less in the Land of More. And we're talking about everyone's favorite topic in church, money. Money, yeah, it's super comfortable for all of you guys to be talking about money. In our first week, Stan covered the topic of gratitude and how we ought to be thankful for the blessings that God has given us. And then last week, my boss, Daniel, he preached the best sermon that I've ever heard in the history of sermons. He is a genius. I love him being my boss. If you see him in the hallway, tell him. Last week, Daniel discussed having contentment in the things that God has given us. And so this week, I get to talk about trust in our finances specifically, but trust in God in general. But before I jump into it, I'd like to highlight just one thing, and you may have noticed this is my second sermon here at Venture. I've been here for about five months, and my first one, I drew the short straw. I had to talk about how money can get in the way of our discipleship with Jesus, everyone's favorite topic, right? And then this week, I get the privilege, I drew the short straw again, of talking not just about trust in our giving, but about tithing. Yeah, it's going to be a fun ride this morning. And so just prepare for my sermons in the future. I'm going to be talking about politics and who everyone should vote for, sexual ethics, everyone's favorite topic, hell, uh, the true cost of discipleship, whether it's, it's pronounced gif or jif, <laughs> controversial, and which emoji should be canceled, which I was told Gen Z is trying to cancel right now. So you can decide amongst yourself which one of those should be canceled. But I just want to call out the elephant in the room. This is an awkward topic. Money in general, how much we should give, how much we should save, how much we should invest, where we should spend our money. And in, in the United States, in our Western culture, we've been inculcated with this idea that every decision that we make is just an individual decision. And that's kind of went, gone into our discipleship thinking a little bit as well. Every decision that we make, that's between us and God. And, and no more do we hear that than in our talk about finances. And to some extent, that's true. But I want to challenge us to think a little bit deeper than that. And in fact, every decision that you make, every thought that you have, every piece of your heart that God has or doesn't have, that affects not just you, but that affects your spouse. And that affects your kids. And that affects your grandkids. And some of you in this room have great grandkids. That affects them. That affects your neighbors. That affects your coworkers. That affects our community here at Venture Christian Church that connects Hamilton County together and ultimately every decision that you make affects what is happening in the world globally. And not to get even deeper than that, but every decision you make affects not just here and now, but it affects people for generations to come. And so I wanna challenge the assumption that your giving is just between you and God. The amount, absolutely, but where your heart is at, that affects every part of the people that you interact with every day, how much you trust God. How obedient we choose to be to God's explicit commands in scripture, but more importantly, maybe how 
we react to God's implicit design for our life? How much do we trust him? So I don't want to be shy about it. Today I'm going to try to do two things in my sermon. One is demonstrate through the life of Abraham that trust is learned. And two, I want to make a biblical case for the, for the idea of a tithe. And I want to track scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament to show that the tithe is still something that we should take very, very seriously as Christians today. So let's talk about Abraham. Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 12, we see Abraham come onto the scene. And this is the father Abraham who had many sons. We sang about him in children's church a lot. And this is the father Abraham that actually most of the world holds in very high esteem. The Christians look to him as a patriarch of the faith. The Jews look to him as a patriarch of the faith. And actually the Muslims also look at Abraham like he's a patriarch of the faith. And this is the same Abraham that trusted God most of the time. Abraham trusted God most of the time. And what I want you to know, if you're anything like me, if you're anything like Abraham, that the trajectory of your life is not going to constantly be a steady line straight to perfect trust in God, but it will go up and down and up and down and trust and distrust and trust and distrust. And I want you to know you're in good company with that. You're in good company. This is a safe space to talk about that, to discuss those things. One of the major lessons that my parents taught me growing up is this. Trust is earned. Can't you hear like your dad or your grandpa saying that to you? Like this deep, gravelly voice. Trust is earned, son. And I believe that's true, right? It takes a while to build up. It's very easy to lose. It's not something that in normal human-to-human interactions that we automatically give someone, but rather it's a slow, steady process of doing what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do it, not doing the things that you say you won't do, and slowly you build up trust with people. Trust is earned. But what I've found in my own relationship with Jesus, and as, as I walk with other people as they process their relationships with Jesus, trust is also learned. Trust is learned. It takes time for us to build up a trust in other people, but also it takes time for us to build up a trust in God. From being curious about Jesus to slowly increasing our obedience to where we rely on him for our lives and our livelihoods. So today, I don't want you to hear judgment from me, from Scripture, from God, from the leadership at our church, but what I want you to hear is an invitation to something more, an invitation to something that God has designed for us in order that we may trust him. Trust is learned. So I'd like to briefly describe the roller coaster of Abraham's life. We see him in Genesis 12, so I got a little ahead of myself. Genesis 12, we see Abram. He is called by God. This is an apex one of the apexes of his life. He's called by God. God says, follow me and I'll give you some stuff. Great moment of trust. And Abraham follows. And then pretty quickly after that, Abraham lies about his relationship to his wife, Sarai. In order to protect himself, he didn't trust God. And then pretty quickly after that in the narrative, God makes a covenant with Abram. And he said, I'm gonna promise you this land specifically, the land that we now call Israel, and I'm gonna give you a lot of offspring. And give you a lot of brother, kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. In Genesis chapter 15, it says this, Abram believed in God, 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we see this throughout the scripture, this verse is referenced. But Abraham, or Abram, at this time, believed in, or as I would translate it, trusted in. He didn't just believe in this idea of God, but he trusted that God would do what he said he would do and that God would remain faithful. One of the apexes of his life. And then we take another turn. Abram and Sarai decide to take the covenant fulfillment that they would have a lot of offspring into their own hands. Sarai couldn't have kids, or they thought, and so he's like, you know what? I'm gonna take my slave girl. We're gonna have the generations built through her. And there were consequences. And then God later, another apex, God changes Abram's name to Abraham from exalted father to father of many, and he makes an, makes an even greater covenant than the covenant before. Not only does he promise him land and many offspring, but he says, nations and kings will come from you. This is an everlasting covenant. This is not just a temporary thing or just in the next couple of years, an everlasting covenant. Your descendants must keep the covenant in order to remain in this relationship with me as their God. Big moment. And then right after that, a very, very similar, <laughs> Abraham lied about his relationship to Sarah, again, to protect his own skin because he did not trust God. And then the story that we hear the most about Abraham, he's asked to do the ultimate trust action. God says, sacrifice your son Isaac, the son of the covenant that I promised you, sacrifice him. And as soon as Abraham is ready to, to slay his son with a knife, God stops it, said, I don't want you to do that. I was testing you, and I wanted to make sure that you were willing to give me everything. And he was. So in this roller coaster of trust, distrust, trust, distrust, we find an interesting account, and there's a lot of speculation about this particular account. It's the account of Melchizedek and, and Abram at this point. Genesis chapter 14. And I don't want to get too much into it because I don't want to take too much of your time today. We've got a lot of other things to do. But basically... Abram's nephew had been captured in this battle. He and his whole family had been captured. All their stuff had been taken away. And Abraham said, no, I'm going to go get him back. So Abram takes all the guys in his household. He goes and fights. He wins back his nephew, Lot, and all their possessions. And then we read this very interesting account in Genesis 14, starting in verse 18. It says this, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So just as quickly as Melchizedek comes onto the scene, Melchizedek leaves the scene, and he's referenced later in Scripture, but we don't really know a lot about this guy. So you guys have probably heard a lot of speculation about him. I honestly don't know who Melchizedek is, except for what the text says, which is that he was a priest of the God Most High. So for some reason, somehow, Abram and Melchizedek, they worship the same God, who we would later find out in Scripture to be called Yahweh. They worship the same God, and Abram, by giving him a tenth of everything, is communicating something. He's not only communicating that he trusted Melchizedek specifically as a priest of the God Most High, he not only was communicating that he was submitting to Melchizedek as his new king, the king of Salem, or what would become Jerusalem later. But he's ultimately communicating that he trusts God. By giving a tenth of everything that he had, he communicates that he trusts God. Tithing, in this case, demonstrates trust. Tithing demonstrates trust. Not only was Abraham, or Abram at this point, giving a tenth of everything that he had, but he was giving a tenth, or he was giving up 
everything that that tenth could have generated. So he's got 10% of his sheep that, and rams that now cannot have more sheep and rams. He's giving away a tenth of his crops that can no longer generate more crops. And so not only is he giving up financial security here and now, but he's giving up some of the possibility of that investment growing later. And I think there's a principle here. So I know the question that most of you are wondering in this room, you're, you're, you're either asking yourself one of two questions. One, what is a tithe? We hear that word a lot, but we don't quite know what it means. Or two, if you've grown up in the church and you've had this explained to you, is a tithe still part of God's expectations for us today? Post-Jesus, as we have a new covenant and we're no longer bound by the old covenant, is tithing still something that we should do as Christians? And so, in order to address those, I'd like to track tithing all the way from the time of Abram, which we just saw the first person in the, in the scriptures tithe, all the way up through the New Testament church. How did the church handle this? So, to make sure our terms are correct, tithe is simply means, it simply means one-tenth. So, Abraham, or Abram in this case, is the first person we hear about in the scriptures who did that. So, tithe is just not money given to the church. So, if you give $20 in the offering plate, we as a community are very thankful for that. But that is not a tithe unless you are making only $200. So you've given money, but you're not giving a tithe. A tithe is strictly 10%. So you can give less than a tithe, you can give more than a tithe, but a tithe simply means one-tenth or 10%. In Genesis 28, so skip ahead a few chapters in Genesis, we see Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson, he also promises to give God a tenth of everything. If God will bless him, God did bless him, so we have every reason to believe that he did stay true to his side of the bargain and give God 10% of everything. So these two guys, they give a tenth of their possessions to God. And the crazy thing is, this was not a part of that culture. This was not a part of the Mosaic law that we'll read about in a minute. This was just something that they gave out of the generosity of their own hearts. There's a principle there. So let's fast forward 400 years. We've got Abram and Jacob, 400 years of slavery in Egypt, Moses and God, they help the people get out of slavery in Egypt. They go to the desert, Mount Sinai. They're wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and we have the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that describe not only what is going on, but it describes the Ten Commandments. And within Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we also have God explaining what he means about those commandments. How can we live in community with God? How can we live in community with one another? And so I'd like to read from Leviticus today. Leviticus chapter 27 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. So we see the tithe being instituted not only just for a handful of people who wanted to be generous, but this is now a national law for the Israelite people, the Hebrews that had been released from slavery in Egypt. What on earth did they do with this money? That's a lot of money. Gary Johnson, the author of the book that we're preaching through, he says it this way. The tithe paid for the tribe of Levi, did repairs on the temple, provided help for the widows and the orphans, and sent prophets out on the road. Paid for the tribe of Levi, did repairs on the temple, provided for the widows and orphans, sent prophets out on the road. So this money was not just sitting in some coffer somewhere. It was being used to do ministry to the people. The Levites were the ones responsible for that in their culture. But it was also used to help the people who couldn't help themselves in their culture. There's a principle there. 
Skip around, Exodus chapter 36, they asked the people for an offering. So this was over and above their tithe, their normal gift that God had commanded them. And he said, I need an offering so that we can build the sanctuary. This is the place where I will dwell. This is what it says, chapter 36, verse 3. They received from Moses all the offerings the Israelites had brought to carry out the work of constructing the sanctuary. And the people continued to bring free will offerings morning after morning. So all the skilled workers who were doing all the work on the sanctuary left what they were doing and said to Moses, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp, no man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. We have too much. And so the people were restraining, were restrained from bringing more because what they had already had was more than enough to do all the work. And so we see, again, let me reiterate, the people are giving over and above their requirement in order to offer something to God. Let's move forward a little bit. So we've got the times where the, the tribes of Israel are, are governed by God. It's a theocracy. We move into the time of the kings. So we remember Saul, we remember David, we remember Solomon, and then there's a long list of kings after that. So the middle of Israel's history. Second Chronicles, we read about King Hezekiah. So he's towards the end of this line. He's in the line uh, of Judah. When the kingdom split, Israel gets taken over by the Assyrians, uh, and Judah survives. King Hezekiah is one of the kings of that. And in 2 Chronicles 31, he is reinstituting the tithe. He's going back to the law and saying, we have not been following this. Let's get back to it. This is what he says, 2 Chronicles 31, uh, verse 4. He ordered the people living in Jerusalem to give the portion due the priests and Levites. So they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as they went out, the Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain, new wine, olive oil, and honey, and all that the fields produced. They brought a great amount, a tenth of everything. So again, we see through Israel's history, it keeps moving, but the trajectory is the same. Time of the kings, it's the same. Let's jump ahead. Book of Nehemiah. So the Judeans, the Jews that were living in Jerusalem, they get taken over by the Babylonians. So they get exiled to Babylon, and then the Persians take over the Babylonians. So King Cyrus is a little bit more of a gracious ruler, and he says to Nehemiah, who was a politician who worked for the king, he said, Nehemiah, you can take your people back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple there. And so the books of Ezra and Nehemiah really talk about this. This is what it says in Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 35. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all the trees and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. So again, throughout Israel's history, we see this a consistent trajectory with the tithe. There's not really a lot of controversy about that. No one's saying, well, God didn't ask us to tithe in the Old Testament. He absolutely was asking his people to do that. The question and the tension that we have to wrestle with, the tension that requires our attention is, is this. Is this still binding? Do we need to continue to follow this? A better question might be, what implicit and explicit clues does the text of the New Testament provide about how followers of Jesus ought to handle their giving and their generosity? So let's jump ahead. The most famous sermon in the Bible, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You guys have probably read this. A lot of you have probably memorized either sections of it or the whole thing. 
I want to grab a couple of things that Jesus says in this. Jesus instructs the crowds, when you give to the needy, this provides a clue. It's not if you give to the needy, but when you give to the needy. He is assuming that the people who are following him are giving in order to help the needy. Moving a little bit around in that, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Do not worry about tomorrow, another passage in that sermon says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Maybe the most poignant of all of those statements. What does Jesus think about our giving? In that same sermon, and this is where I think a part of the crux of this issue lies, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Rather, I have come to fulfill them. He's saying, the law was pointing at a perfect relationship with me and my kingdom. The prophets were pointing at a perfect relationship with me and my kingdom. And as we read the text of the Sermon on the Mount, this very famous sermon, we see Jesus not canceling out the old law, but rather he's up in the ante. He is raising the bar to say, hey, these are some laws that I gave you to follow because you guys had hard hearts, but really I gave you these laws because there's a heart of mine, a heart of God behind it, and that heart has a higher bar set. Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, do not be angry with your brother or sister. He ups the ante. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, do not look at a woman lustfully. He ups the ante. He said, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. I tell you, turn the other cheek. He ups the ante. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, Jesus is upping the ante. And it begs the question, why would Jesus completely negate the history of the tithe? Why would he completely negate that and then proceed to talk quite a bit about money in this sermon and throughout his ministry? So now we see the trajectory from the Old Testament through the New is consistent. And if you want something a little bit more explicit, we'll read Matthew 23, 23. Jesus is reprimanding some of his uh, religious, some of the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, some of the people that were antagonistic to him regularly in his ministry. This is what he says. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, the smallest spices. You make sure to tithe on that. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You should have practiced the latter, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, without neglecting the former, giving a tenth of even the smallest portions. There's a principle there. What about Paul in the early church, you might ask? Let's look at the early church. Acts chapter 4, the early church was starting to gain momentum. Peter had preached his first sermon. A lot of believers were coming into the fold. This is what Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says about their attitude towards giving. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone 
who had need. So it doesn't talk about the tithe right here. Tithe was something that the early Christians, they would have just assumed that they were going to continue to do that. But rather, this is talking about stuff that they already had. So this is not something they were earning. This is possessions they already owned. They were selling their land and selling their houses and bringing the money to the early church to take care of the needy. They were going way above and beyond the tithe. You might ask, what, doesn't Paul write a little bit about this? Like, you have to give with a cheerful heart. Let me read that passage too. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I absolutely believe that to be true, but I was taught growing up that that means that if you can't give with a good heart, then don't give at all. And that's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying, still give, but change your heart. Still obey, but change your heart. And as we read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul is really calling out the Corinthian church because they are a wealthier church. And he said, there's a church in Macedonia. They are super poor and they gave so far above and beyond. And Paul's challenging them, raise your own level of generosity. Go above and beyond. The early church wasn't worried as much as we are today, as much as I have been, about how much to give. What's the minimum that I have to give in order to be obedient? But rather, they were worried about how much they could give. Not how much they had to, how much they could. Pastor, author, theologian Kevin DeYoung kind of throws all of this discussion on its head when he says this. Whether the Old Testament requirement is a binding prescription or not, should we tithe? I find it hard to imagine that Western Christians who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and who enjoy great prosperity would want to give less than what was required of the poorest Israelite. And he goes on to say this, statistics consistently show that Protestants give less than 3% of their income to their churches. A tithe for most churchgoers would be a huge step in the right direction. So again, I don't want you to hear today that we're telling you that if you don't do this, that you are going to hell, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the classic thing, right? If you don't love Jesus, you're going to hell. You don't abide by what Jesus says right here, you're going to hell. That's not what we're communicating. We want to tell you what the scriptures say so that you can do with that what you feel is necessary. Trust is learned. You'll start here, you'll go down, you'll go up, you'll go down. The goal is that our trajectory continues to get closer and closer to God as we go through life's up and downs, just like Abraham. I would argue, though, that you cannot have a strong relationship with God without genuine trust. And for most of us, and maybe I would argue all of us who live in America in a very prosperous country, that we all have a little piece of our heart that is grabbed by money. We need to trust God with that. So how can we take steps, much like Abraham did throughout his life, to increase our trust with God? And specifically, what are some of the steps that we should take when it comes to money? For some of you in this room, that may be that you need to stop spending more money than you make. You need to get out of debt in order to be able to be generous. And that's a good next step. For others of you in this room, maybe your next step is to simply start giving something. Take a small step of trust so that you can show, so that God can prove to himself that he will be faithful to you. For still others, it's time to start looking at your finances more specifically and saying, you know what, I don't have to just give 
20 bucks when I feel convicted about the message, but I can make this a consistent part of my faith walk by giving 1% or 2% or 3%. Good next step. For still others in this room, you might give consistently, but it's not yet at a tenth. It's not yet at a tithe. And so the challenge for some of us in this room is to say, you know what, I'm going to change the way I spend my money. I'm going to change my investment habits so that I can invest 10% of my income into the kingdom. And still for others, we can follow the example of the early church and even of some of the people in Israel's history who didn't just stop at the, at the floor of God's 10%, but they said, we want to give over and above because God has provided for us consistently. That's a good next step. Trust is learned. God is patient, and ultimately, he wants to renovate your heart. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. But part of what he does to get to your heart is he tells you, let's, let's live with a little less so that others can be taken care of. Three challenges for you today. Three places to consult. Because this is a tough topic. and I've only scratched the surface. Consult the scriptures. I tried to give a very wide breadth, breadth of scripture today. New Testament, Old Testament, all of it. But there's a lot more that the Bible has to say about how we manage our money, how we manage our finances. Consult the scriptures. The second is this. Consult your community. This is part of your community. I'm a part of your community. Start a conversation with me. Start a conversation with some of our pastors, our elders, your small group leader, people that you sit next to in the rows. Talk about this with them. And the third, excuse me, consult the Holy Spirit. Consult the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a lot of things to say about the things that you do and the things that you think. What is the Holy Spirit telling you specifically about your trust in him, about your relationship with God, about how you need to handle your finances. If you live life with the Spirit, he will tell you. Ask God what next step he would have for you in the future. And then I challenge you to do this. Don't just ask. Listen. Listen to what he's telling you to do. Please join with me. We're going to watch a video with a challenge from Pastor Stan that's challenging every single person in our church about next steps on what to do with this message. Thank you, Jake. What he said is so true. Trust, it's learned. I want to take an opportunity today to lean into that truth. I hope you've been enjoying this series too much, living with less in the land of more. I was reading my Bible this morning and there's a passage that jumped off the page at me. It's in Isaiah chapter 55, beginning with verse 8. It says this, God is speaking first person. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If I skip a couple of verses down to verse 11, he says, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not, it will not return to me empty. James, the book of James says, we want to be not just hearers of the word, God's word, but we want to be doers of the word as well. We put our faith into action. It says, uh, but it will, my word will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Another translation actually says that my word shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. 
That word prosper is so interesting to me used in that context. This is why a couple weeks ago, if you were here on a Sunday morning, Don and I wanted to make sure we gave you a gift of this book, Too Much. And the challenge was, would you, would you read it? Here's why. Because I deeply believe this. We talk about finances and money. If we live the way that God intended for us to live, it's actually better. It's better for us because it's his plan. So we want to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So I want to give you the heads up that this series is going to have an action step attached to it. Similarly to a few weeks ago at the end of our one life spiritual growth journey. Remember we said we, you have one life to invest. Who's the one life that you're investing in? And at the end of that, we all came forward and we, we screwed in a light bulb and said, yeah, God, I want this in my life. I want to double down on this truth that we've been studying over the last several weeks. Similarly, next week, you're going to have the opportunity to respond with what God has been prompting in your heart as we talk about living in the land, living with less in the land of more, this idea of too much. We're going to send you out today with an action step. And here's the challenge this week. Would you simply, if you're married, maybe gather together with your spouse and pray over this. Next week during the service, we're going to give you an action step. It's going to be anonymous. It's not a commitment between you and your church. It's a commitment between you and your God. There won't be any spotlight on you. It'll be a moment for you to simply declare, God, I'm being obedient. I'm following you in this. There are a series of boxes on this where you're going to declare, God, this is the level to which I trust you with the resources that you have blessed me with more Less, living with less in the land of more. I have too much, but God, you've blessed me, and I want to respond in kind. So I just want to give you a heads up. Would you pray over that this week? I'll explain more about how we'll do that next week, but the opportunity and the challenge is yours. I can't wait to see you, Venture family, next Sunday as we celebrate that moment together. Would you stand up with me right now as we wrap up our service?